Alright, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we're going to cover the whole chapter today. So Romans chapter 12, verse 1 through 21. Um, you know, and over the course of these first 11 chapters that we've covered in uh, Romans, Paul has really carefully laid out doctrines, um, those doctrines that are essential to Christianity. So he has um, taught us about our sin and, and how it has taken us away from God. And he talked about salvation and specifically justification and how God has declared us righteous as if we have never sinned. And we talked about a little bit about sanctification as he talks about the fact that we have died to sin and we now live to Christ. And so he's, he's dealt with a lot of these doctrines. And obviously the last three chapters have been about Israel and the fact that, that God is in control and, and that he has a plan. And so we've dealt with a lot of things that would be more in that um, doctrinal or thought process. Now, one thing that is important for us to remember is that the gospel is in the middle of all of this, and what we are about to see is that the gospel has a lasting effect on our lives. Meaning, you don't just hear about Jesus, believe in Jesus, and then go on about your own business. It's never the same again. When we meet Jesus, we change, and we change for the rest of our lives. So as we approach this, these final chapters of the letter of Romans, Paul begins to explain the ways that Christians should live in the world. So, it is, it is the difference between um, what basically makes us live a certain way and the way that we're supposed to live. So if we believe what Paul has taught here about the gospel, about what Jesus has done in our lives, about the changes that happened once we became saved, then these are the ways that we're going to live in the world. So the order is very important because it's as if Paul is saying that these things are true uh, or if these things are true, this is the kind of person you'll be. Um, and, and it goes back to the difference between agreeing with ideas and actually believing those ideas. So you might agree with a certain number of ideas, but if you don't believe them, it won't really change your life. And, and that's true in, a, in every area of our lives. And so, you know, one thing that, that, um, that you hear people say sometimes, you say, well, I got to start eating right. Well, I have been saying that for a little while, but guess what I'm not doing? I'm not eating right. So there's some disconnect between what I know I probably should do and what I actually believe and, and therefore do. Um, and so that's something that, that we have to realize. It, it's, it's true in our Christianity as well. The things that we actually believe, we'll live differently based on those things. And that's what Paul is saying is the things that he has taught us in the first 11 chapters will change the way that we live. And so as we read chapter 12, if you pull it out from the, its context in Romans and just kind of look at it like that, it could be legalistic. And so the legalist would say, do these things and you would live. But was, what Paul is saying is live, get true life from Jesus Christ, and these are the things that you will do. And so more than commands, a lot of these should be descriptions. It's like the Beatitudes. You remember the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor uh, in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If you, if you remember the Beatitudes, you remember Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Um, some people said, well, these are all commands. You've got to go out and be poor in spirit. You've got to be meek. You've got to be gentle. All those things that, that are commanded in that or seem to be commanded in that. But really, Jesus was describing what a citizen of the kingdom of heaven looks like. That's what he was really doing. And that's also what Paul's doing. This is the way it will be among Christians. 
This is the way you will interact with God. This is the way you will interact with other people. And this is the way that you will interact even with the lost. So only once the power of sin is broken by what God did in Christ can ethical commands be effective. And what that means is that if we go out and we tell people who aren't saved how they're supposed to live, we might do more harm than good. But once we are saved, once God has transformed our heart, that guidance is helpful. And so that's what we're getting this morning, hopefully, is helpful guidance about how we should live our lives. You're almost getting a, a way to make decisions to, to determine your reactions based on what happens through the Word of God here. And so it's very, very important. So the sermon, in a sentence, is this. Christians should always have the humble attitude of a servant and be willing to show love. So let's read this chapter, Romans chapter 12, 1 through 21. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect." For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one, uh, members one of another." Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, Never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, it is possible to hear this and think, Wow, that's just a whole bunch of commands. And some of them are related and some of them are not. But I do believe that there is a general uh, thought process going on here in which Paul is helping to kind of set the attitude that Christians have. So the first two verses really, I believe, help us to set the attitude towards God. What is our disposition toward God? And so let's look at this a little bit. So as he begins this passage, he makes it clear 
that the life he is encouraging the Romans to live is based on what God has already done for them. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, uh, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. The therefore is important. The therefore means based on everything I've said. I appeal to you based on, again, the mercies of God. So what he's saying, God's given you mercy. God has saved your soul. God has changed your eternal destiny. So I appeal to you based on that to do what I'm about to say. So what is it that he's saying? So Paul is urging the Romans to be obedient. Um, and, and this means that the decision to surrender to God, which is kind of where we're getting at, that must be a willing decision. You cannot force somebody or command somebody to surrender to God. Christians cannot be coerced, blackmailed, or otherwise forced into righteousness. They can't do it. Now, there have been times where people have tried to force things in the church, whether that be you know, the, the Protestant church, Catholic church, or all the way back. There have been times where people have tried to force the issue. And yes, they can get visible, surface-level obedience or, or acquiescence at least, but it is not from the heart. And that's the only kind of service God ever wants is service from the heart. So quite simply stated, the life of a believer is supposed to be a sacrifice to God. That's what he's saying there, is that present your bodies, and that doesn't just mean the physical body, but that means your life, to present your life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So Paul's request would have been much more powerful in the first century than it is today, just in terms of language, because first century people were familiar with sacrifices. Most of them had probably stood near an altar. They had seen an animal, possibly their own animal, brought to that altar, killed, the blood manipulated, depending on what religion it was, and then some or all of that animal then being burned and, and their fragrance going up and serving whatever deity or god they were worshiping. Because you've got to remember, there, there were some Jewish Christians uh, here, some people that had been Jewish, and so they knew about the Jewish sacrificial system. But the pagans also sacrificed to foreign gods. And so they, everybody knew what a sacrifice was. And they knew that it meant death. Okay, but Paul says a living sacrifice. So what does this mean, and how, how is this different? Well, the main thing, um, when, he, when he talks about a living sacrifice, is that now the life is the sacrifice, not the death. And so that's a major part of what we have to recognize, is that it is our entire life. There's no shortcuts there. there, there there's no room for debate there where we can say, well, you know, God will give you two hours on Sunday, We'll give you one hour on Wednesday, and I'll give you 15 minutes in the morning if I don't get in too big of a rush. That's not a living sacrifice. That's working God into your schedule, and God doesn't work that way. God sets your schedule. God sets your life. God gives you your life. And so we have to recognize that it is about giving up our entire lives. And so this is what distinguishes us from, from the animals is that our lives are the sacrifice, not our deaths. The next thing, Paul says in verse 2, he says, be conformed, or don't be conformed, but be transformed. Now, those two words sound like synonyms, right? They sound like they're, they're the same word, don't be conformed, but be transformed, but they're actually not. Conformed is almost like a complacent or a passive thing that, that basically happens. So when you are conformed, you're passively adapting to the circumstances. Um, so if, 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 it is, if there's no action taken... This is the course that you'll find yourself on. That's what being conformed means. Now, being transformed is an active process where there's effort put into the change. That's, that's what these two words mean, and that's how they're different. 
And so notice what he says, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, which could happen subconsciously. If you don't actively try to stay away from what's going on in this world, you will naturally, subconsciously become like this world. What the world approves, you will slowly find yourself approving. What the world values, you will slowly find yourself valuing. But if we are intentional about our following of Jesus Christ, if we're intentional about the way that we live, we're going to be transformed. Now, how is that transformation process going to take place? Um, It's going to happen with our thinking. So just like the whole first part of this book was about our thinking, it was about doctrine, it was about teaching, and now we're getting the practical thing, that's what we have to recognize is that the transformation that makes us more like God, makes us a, a acceptable sacrifice to God, that's going to start with our thinking. We've got to think differently about things. We've got to think the way God thinks, not the way that mankind thinks. And so one example of thinking the way that God thinks would be the word confession. I've probably shared this before, but the word confession in the Bible means to say the same thing. And so when we confess our sins, that doesn't mean that we, we come to God and we say, God, I told a little white lie today. There's no such thing in God's vocabulary. You didn't confess anything if you told God you told a little white lie. The reality is we have to come to God and say, God, I have perverted the truth. I, I have went against your commandment and I have told something that is not true. Please forgive me. That's confession. That's saying what God would say about your sin. That's harder to do. That is a much more difficult task for us because we don't really want to face what we've done, but that's more difficult. But that's a renewing of thinking because if we, if we are unintentional, we'll think about our sin the way that the world would think about our sin. Show me the verse that says lies can be little white lies, can be little simple harmless things. There's not a verse like that, but the world has told us that for a long time, right? And so that's what we have conformed our thinking to. We've got to make sure that we are thinking the way God wants us to, to, to think. So he tells us that we have to renew our minds. So Christians should not be like the world because we should not think like the world. That's the thing that's going to change the way that we live is the way that we think. We've got to be thinking the way God wants us to think, not the way that the world wants us to think. So when we evaluate situations whether they be situations of morality or whether they be situations of, of what should be done next or what, however, we should think about them in God's terms, not in terms of the world. We don't take our advice, we don't take our, our, our initiatives from the world. We just don't do that. It's not helpful. Um, when we have a renewed mind, not only will we discover that God's will is good, but we will put it into practice. So notice what he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Now, grammar is is weird in English. It's worser in Greek. Um, And so all of these things are right. The will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, the grammar may be difficult for you to quite understand how, how it's all put together, but God's will is all of those things that come after it. So discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's the will of God. And so the, the way that this is worded indicates not just that you know what the will of God is, but that you will do the will of God. It does us no good to know what God wants us to do if we have no intention of doing it. If we don't do what God has said, we are still wrong. We have to do what God is telling us to do. We have to 
put that will into practice. Now that is personally, that is in the church, that, that is in every way that we can possibly say. It's in our families, it's in our workplace, it's everywhere we have to do the will of God. So we've got to know it, and the only way we're really going to know it is when we start renewing our minds so that we can think like God. What's the best way to start thinking like God? Read his word. This is his words. These are his thoughts on paper. This is the way you do that. And so we begin to learn how God thinks, how God views a situation that will help us then when we start evaluating situations of our own. So true spiritual discernment determines what God wants and then sets us to doing it. And I will tell you today, the church is certainly in need of some spiritual discernment because the church today, uh, larger churches are ran like businesses, like secular businesses. In every church, there's usually some kind of thing that's been brought in from the world, whether it be intentionally or unintentionally, that, that is the process, but it's a worldly process instead of God's process. We've got to make sure that we're using that spiritual discernment to do what God would have us to do. So there's outdated ideas, um, and, and, and those have to go, but those were, those were possibly developed by people anyway. But the true, lasting will and practices of God, those things should never, ever change. You know, people are going to want change. People are going to want things to look different. They're going to want things to sound different. They're going to want all kinds of different ways that we go about, but we don't need to do that. We need to focus on what God wants us to do. God's will. And if God's will doesn't change, then we do not change. So too often the strategies of the church look like the strategies of the world because the leaders of the church haven't renewed their minds. We must eliminate our dependence on secular thinking and look for God's plan in our lives and in our churches. So... Does it disturb you to read a news article and realize that a church has the same kind of problems that the world has? Well, it's probably because they have the same kind of strategies. We have a whole different source of power. The world, if they want something to not happen, they've got to write a rule or a regulation or they've got to have somebody to hold other people accountable. For us, we have the laws in place and we have the accountability in place through God. We need to depend on that not on what the world has to say. So our attitude toward God needs to be one of sacrifice. We need to be giving our lives to Him and allowing Him to lead us and guide us. When He reveals our will, then we do. When He reveals His will, then we do it. We make it our own and we do it. And that's the, that's the, that's the attitude that we should have toward God. But what about towards each other? And when I say towards each other, I mean Christian to Christian. So what is that relationship supposed to look like? Christian to Christian. So as we move forward, and this really starts in verse 3, um, Paul begins to talk about the way that Christians should interact with the other Christians. So look at the first thing he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone. So he is using, and he uses the same phrase later to talk about the grace given to you for a particular calling. He's using the calling that he has received as that grace. So the grace that he's received to be an apostle, which was a high calling, and it, was, it came with a lot of authority. So he's using that calling to say, this is what he says next. By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has given. So right away, he's using the authority of apostle to tell the Romans to not think of themselves as greater than someone else, to have some humility. In fact, we should judge ourselves according to what God reveals to us. This is the first place that we judge. We don't go off judging other Christians first. Is there a time for us to think, okay, so is, was this right or wrong? Should we evaluate? Maybe. But the first person we should ever judge is ourselves. 
And we should make a practice of doing that based on what God is revealing to us. He will continually reveal more. There will be more refining. I hate to have bad news for you this morning, but you're not perfect. I'm not perfect. None of us are perfect. God is continuously refining us. And so that means we're going to have to keep listening to him, keep looking for his will, and then when his will is there, when it's revealed, then we continue to refine by judging ourselves and then moving forward from that. And so that's an important thing that we should do. Paul reminds the Romans that the church is a body, and as such, not everyone will function the same way even though we're in the same body. So he kind of goes into this conversation saying we're you know, just as one body as many members. And so he uses this terminology throughout his writing. He talks about you know, the hand is not the foot and the ear is not the eye and those kinds of things. He talks about that. And that's, that's what he's saying is that your body, different parts of your body function in different ways and the church is like a body. And so different members of the church are going to function in different ways. And so that's kind of the imagery that he's using there as he begins to, to tell the Romans that their, their gifts and their callings are going to be different. We're going to receive those, um, and, and that means that our activities, our daily activities, are going to be different. And so if, if you say, well, this person never does this, well, maybe that's not within the scope of what God has them doing. And so maybe we shouldn't just judge someone because of what they don't do. Maybe God is, is, is placing us in one place, placing them in another place. You know, my ears never see anything. And I could talk about that a long time, but it doesn't even make sense, does it? And so that's, that's what we have to remember, is that Christians in a church, they each have a calling. They each have a purpose. They each have a gift. And Paul's going to talk about those gifts a little bit. And they have to perform those gifts and those callings. So Christians should approach every situation with humility, understanding that we all serve the same God. You may not know what you don't know, but you should know that you don't know everything. And we should be there. So there may be things that we don't know anything about. And that's part of being a Christian and developing and growing. But we should at least be aware of the fact that there's, some, there's things we don't know. We don't know why a person does this or why something happens here or that. And we just need to be believing in God that God is in control of that. So if I do something good, does, do I get the credit or God? Should be God, Right? And so I should trust that God is working in other people's lives as well. I shouldn't say, well, they never do this, or this person never does this. Or this. That's, that's not beneficial. That's not edifying. It doesn't grow the church. It doesn't help the church. All it really does is creates contention. You know, it creates conflict. In other, word, in other words, we should focus on ourselves, what, what God's calling us to do. Trust that other people are doing the same thing, and then things can work the way that it's supposed to. So that's an important part. So for individuals, we should not be busy judging each other or saying, well, you should be doing what I'm doing because I'm doing right. Well, you may be doing right for your calling and your gifts, but that may be not what they're supposed to do. And so we have to remember that. So uh, we often refer to the church as a family. We do, but the Bible specifically refers to us as a body. Uh, and I think that's important. Um, the, the, the God, God has gifted each of us uniquely, and each of these gifts are necessary for the success of the church. So Paul goes through a list here. He kind of starts that list basically around um, verse 6. Um, so he's, he talks about prophecy toward the end, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us, let us um, use them. So if prophecy in proportion to our faith... Now I will make a mention of prophecy here when we hear prophecy we usually think about telling the future right that's 
That, that's kind of where we categorize that, but that's not really mostly how the Bible views prophecy anyway. If you look at the Old Testament prophets, they spent way more of their time challenging kings or priests or whoever was in charge with, with their sin and then saying, if you don't do this, God's going to show judgment, than actually telling the future. Now, Technically, that is telling the future God's going to show judgment, but really that's a promise that God's made. He's not going to you know, allow the proud to stand. God's made those promises, so you're not even telling the future. You're just saying, you know, God's already promised that if you do this, he's going to do this. And so we may not know the specifics. You know, there's certain, you know, um, I guess Old Testament books. You, you think about Daniel, Ezekiel. There are a few Old Testament books where if you read it really carefully, you might figure out which country is going to judge Israel at that particular time. But that would be about it. What we have to realize is that the voice of prophecy in the church is more calling out the problems, calling out the sins, calling out the, the inconsistencies, calling out the things that are happening, and, and, and warning the way that the Old Testament prophets warn. That is what the gift of prophecy is in the New Testament. So it's not me saying, well, you know, next week you're going to get a new car, or you're going to come into this money, or you're going to come into this problem, or that kind of thing. God doesn't ever describe that as something that he's going to let people do. But what he does tell us is that we can warn. And we know that we can warn. Mothers are great prophets. Mothers are wonderful prophets. My mom would tell me all the time what was going to happen if I didn't do right. Now sometimes that involved a switch or a shoe or some other weapon of mass destruction. And then sometimes it was put your eye out or you're going to fall or you know, if you cut your legs off of that thing, don't come running back to me. Those kinds of things, those are all prophecies, right? And it doesn't necessarily have to be specific, but it is, a, it is a, a confrontation of your sin and then it is a warning based off of that. And that's ultimately what prophecy is. And so he says that some people have the gift of prophecy, but he goes through many others. He talks about service, and serving covers a wide variety of tasks. Um, there is a, it's a possible translation, it's not the only translation, but worship itself can be translated as service. Uh, the word deacon is translated as servant. There are a lot of things in the Bible that are described as servants, and, and, and we have to recognize, and Paul himself says, sometimes he calls himself a servant of God, sometimes he calls himself a slave of God. We have to recognize that service is a big part of the church. Now, one thing that we know about service is that when we are serving, we are putting ourselves below other people. We are, we are putting our needs last. And he mentions services as one of the gifts of God. So it is a, it is a high calling. It, in fact, it's second on this particular list. You've got prophecy and then you've got servant. So that is a very high calling. It's an important thing, but it's going to look different for different people. Um, and it's definitely a gift that is, is deserving of respect for those that have it. Teaching uh, is different than preaching. Uh, preaching asks for a response. Teaching basically imparts information, and, and then you have to believe that, or, or I guess life-changing information in the church. So teaching and preaching are different. Um, and if you're sitting here saying, well, what's this guy? What is he? I'm more of a teacher than, than, than most anything else, to be honest with you. Preaching means I'm asking you to do something, and I try to do that in every sermon. Prophecy is that warning with, you know, with impending judgment, and there's times where maybe that happens, but teaching is, is where I believe God's gifted me the most. And so when you think about where God's gifted you, it's important that we evaluate ourselves and say, what has God done? 
Because the reality is he's building something in you. And it's likely that your experiences and the, the, the gifts that you have, the natural talents, that's part of your particular gift. So that's important to be thinking about those things. Um, to exhort means to plead with somebody to do something. So preaching is more, here's this thing and, and you should do it. Exhorting is more, and, and one of the clearest definitions is beg. Exhorting is begging somebody to do something. And so let's, let's say, for example, we were following Jesus' pattern of church discipline. Um, that, that's not a super comfortable subject, but it's really easy because God lays it all out for us. And so you think about church discipline, and, and, you, and you think about how it says, first of all, go with one or two and talk to this person uh, about what's going on, and, and you get to the point where you bring them before the church. And if they are not going to repent at that point, then the church is going to have to discipline them. That would be a prime time to exhort. There'd be a prime time to go to that person and say, please, for the harmony of the church, for your own spiritual well-being, reconsider your position on this. That would be a time to exhort. That'd be a time to plead with somebody. And so that's an important thing. Um, and it is a gift that God has given certain people. Certain people can um, convince. And so, like, for example, when we make the nominating committee, exhorting may be one of the gifts that they have to have. Look, we've got this empty position. Please, for everything, feel this gift. And so we understand what exhorting is, right? And so he also talks about um, uh, uh, contributions. And contributions are supposed to be generous, meaning they're not given um, grudgingly. Um, you don't ask for contributions. You don't push for contributions. And I don't, I don't do that. I, I've heard of, of stories of, of, of preachers doing that. I've actually heard stories where the plate's passed around and the preacher looks and says, nope, that ain't good enough, and sends it back. I don't know if that would fly here, but what I'm saying is I don't think that you do that begrudgingly. I don't think that's something that, that that's just not what generosity is all about. Um, when he says leaders, leaders are supposed to lead with zeal. They're supposed to be excited about where they're taking the church, and so that is definitely an important thing. And then when he talks about acts of love, um, that would be like the benevolence. And the benevolent arm of the church should be glad to help those who are in need. That should not be a burden, but a joy to help those who are in need. Um, so Paul tells the Romans to let their love be genuine. That's a really important thing in verse 9. Let their love be genuine um, because there's certainly uh, a type of love that's only for show. There's definitely that type of love, and that's, that just doesn't have a place in the church. We don't pretend in the church. We have to have genuine love and show genuine love, and that's very important. Um, so we love our brothers and sisters in Christ with a decent, moral, and abiding love. If you look at what he says, he says, Abhor what is evil, hold, to what is, um, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, and outdo one another in showing honor. And so when we think about these things, obviously what Paul is saying here is that, that it should be love. It should be pure. It should be righteous. We hate evil. We love what is good. We're going to hold fast to what is good. And we're going to show honor to one another. Every member in the church should strive to treat every other member of the church better than they themselves are treated. Now think about what that church would look like if every person in the church was trying to treat everyone else better than they were treated, everybody would get treated wonderfully, right? That, that would be the goal. Think about that would change a generation. That would change a community. That would definitely make an impact. And that's what he's saying. That, the attitude we're supposed to have towards one another is always outdoing each other with honor. So we also have to recognize that um, 
Evil can have no part among us. It can't be a joke, it can't be a memory, and it can't be a subtle visitor. We shouldn't laugh and joke about bad things. We shouldn't make, you know, old memories where we did the wrong thing. We shouldn't make that some fun, enjoyable discussion. Um, and we should never let it come back into the church and back into our lives. And so that, that, is, that is an important thing. So when we're lifting up things, we're lifting up the things that are good and right, not the things that are evil. So every member of the church, I've already read that, um, the amount of honor and love that would be shown if the church was obedient to these kinds of commands here, that kind of love and honor would change things. It would change this country, I do believe. Because right now, if you look at our country, there, there's definitely a moral decline. Um, but, but it's not just in, in, in the lost, it is also within the church. And so the church doesn't have that ground to stand on to say, listen, world, you've got to turn to Jesus, because the world would say, what's it done for you? And we wouldn't have a good answer for that because the church has been in decline, not just in numbers, but also in morality. When you look every day, you can find a news story about some church leader that, that, that got caught in a sin or some church that is just full of corruption. You find all these terrible things. And so we're destroying our own witness and our own testimony. If we were to live the way that this passage here is telling us to live, it could change things, and it could change things for quite some time. Um, we should never grow tired or lazy in our service to the Lord. Um, we don't get done. Uh, God has a very clear retirement date for all of us, and every one of us will understand it when it comes. And, and, and if you're thinking, well, have I reached it yet? No, you haven't. Your heart's beating, right? You're breathing. So you haven't retired from God's service yet. So be sure to, to not grow tired or weary of doing what God has called us to do. You know, we should hang on to the promises that God has given us so that we can rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation. It is easy to forget the goodness of God, especially when we go through something difficult. It can be as simple as having an incredibly busy day, or it can be as, as bad as, as facing some kind of real tribulation or persecution. But when we face those things, it's easy for us to forget God. I keep going back and thinking about the first chapter of Joshua. If you think about that very first chapter where God's talking to Joshua, he tells him to be brave and courageous, but he also tells him, don't forget me. Don't forget me. And I think that's important for us to remember is that, that it is easy for us to practically, even if we don't intellectually forget God, it's easy for us to practically forget God because we're not living like he's there and we've got to be sure that we do that. And that's very, very important for us. Um, he also talks about prayer. He says that we should be constant in prayer. We should never forget to pray. We should also help other Christians who are in need. Um, he, he mentions that um, showing hospitality, um, contribute to the needs of the saints. Um, those are important things and important parts of our attitude. And I think it goes right back to humility, love, and service. And those are the things um, that, that Paul says, those are the attitudes that we're supposed to have um, as people who are, um, who are Christians dealing with other Christians. So to kind of sum up, our faith should be loving, pure, and vibrant. That's how we as believers are supposed to live and interact with other believers. But what about this lost world? Starting in verse 14, it seems like Paul's talking more about the, how Christians interact with the lost. And so how are we supposed to look and how are we supposed to act? Um, it goes without stating because Paul doesn't actually state it, but the world is going to be hostile towards us um, and our immediate response should be to bless them. 
the world hated Jesus, the world killed Jesus, and so the world's going to hate us. As we are being faithful to God, that's why a little bit later it says, as much as it is within your power, live peacefully with all people, because when you're being faithful to God, there's going to be some people that just hate you, period. There's no other way around it. So that's going to happen. We're going to face that kind of adversity, and we've got to be willing and ready to bless the people that hate us, the people that persecute us. Um, We should always find a way to empathize with the world. He says, rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that we, you know, the reality is if you're standing out in your neighborhood and your next door neighbor, you know they are lost. They are very, very lost and they're, they're going to go to hell if they die. And, and they've got a little child that's learning how to ride the bike and the dad's out there, you know, letting the child ride the bike and he's celebrating and excited because the kid can ride the bike. You shouldn't say, well, you're still going to hell. Rejoice with them. Their kid can ride a bike. And then maybe build that relationship from there. Maybe that's how that works for you. And so we have to be willing to empathize, even with the loss, anytime we can without compromising our faith and compromising our beliefs. And when they're sorrowful, when, when they're going through hard times, that's not the time to say, well, this all happened because you don't love God. That's not the time to do that. That's the time to show love and compassion and then reach in with ministry, not with judgment. And so those are some of the things that Paul's saying. That's how we respond to the world. Not in the cold, heartless way that sometimes have actually characterized us. So we should find a way to empathize with the world so that we can have fruitful ministry with them. There is no excuse for a Christian to be cruel or vindictive, ever. We should never be cruel and vindictive. Um, There's just no reason for us to be that way. You know, he talks about living at peace, and and it's important for us to do that, living in harmony with one another. Um, He mentions in verse 16, um, but then he also mentions in verse 18, if it is possible, or if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. There are people that's going to just have a problem with you, and there's not much you can do about that because you can't abandon Jesus, which is probably the problem they have, but you can live peacefully as best as you can. Um, And we should never give the world the impression that we think we're better than them. That was one of the mistakes of the Jews. The Jews thought and acted like they were better than all the Gentile nations around them, and so that gave them a negative, um, that just gave people a negative opinion of them. As Christians, we can never do that. We're not better than anybody else. We're just saved, and we want to tell you how to be saved as well, and that's what we should be about. That's the business that we should be about, is telling other people how to be saved. We should pay specific attention to the lowly, because Jesus left that example for us. He says, care for the lowly. And that's important for us to do. Those are the people that need help. And through that ministry, we might be able to do some good. But at the same time, it doesn't say care for the lowly as long as it's fruitful. It says care for the lowly. And so we have to be willing to do that even if they don't turn to Jesus. We should never consider ourselves wise. And there should never be an elitist mentality in the church. And so... As we study more in the Word, sometimes there is this tendency to think that people that don't know what we now know, they must be foolish or they must be lesser than us. We should never have that attitude. What you know about God, God has revealed to you as a gift. If He did not reveal it to you, you would not know it. And that's important for us to remember that if if you are on the path of life, and you meet somebody that doesn't know what you know about God, that doesn't mean they're lesser than you. That doesn't mean that you're more wise than them. That means that God has revealed that to you, and it may be that He's going to use you as the instrument to reveal that to them. And so we should never have that elitist mentality. 
you do see that in churches a lot of times. Well, I believe this, or I've read this book, or you know, I carry this kind of Bible, or whatever, and so people are elite. We should never think that way. There's no place for that among Christians. Never should we act that way or, or basically present ourselves as better than other people. Um, it's simply forbidden for a Christian to seek revenge regardless of the circumstances. It's just forbidden. Now, is that, is that easy for us to follow all the time? You know, somebody hits me, somebody does something to me, that's, that's easy, okay, whatever. Hurt my family, and, and all of a sudden, it's a whole different conversation. But the Bible forbids us from seeking revenge. We shouldn't. It's God's. And let me tell you that whatever you have in mind as a punishment for what someone did, God will do better. And so trust in God. Believe that God will keep His promises. We should live honorably in a dishonorable world and trust that God will make all things right. And if nobody's ever told you this before, I will tell you, Christians live their whole life on display. If you've ever let anybody know that you're a Christian, and by the way, we should with our lives and by the fact that we're always telling somebody about Jesus, we should let people know that we live for Christ. And once you do, people will be watching. They will be watching you always. And so we have to live a life that honors God, not a life that displays that there's no real difference between Christians and non-Christians. Um, you know, we have to live above reproach. We don't need to give people an opportunity to point to us because they're not going to just judge you. Your reputation isn't that important, but, but what they're going to do is they're going to say, see, God didn't change them. He's not going to change me. And so just imagine if something you did caused someone else not to believe in Jesus because they believed that he had no power. If he couldn't change you, he wouldn't change them. We have to live a life above reproach. God's faithful. Um, we've already kind of covered this, but He's going to take vengeance where it's where where it is um, where it is deserved. We should never take joy in the suffering of others, no matter what they have done to us. We never take joy in the suffering of others. Serves them right should be taken out of your vocabulary. They made their bed; they can lay in it. Should be taken out of your vocabulary. Any passive way of just saying, you know what? They made their problems, they can, they can deal with it. That should be taken out of our vocabulary. We should not be happy, we should not rejoice when people suffer. That is never a good thing, even if they are people we would deem to be evil. We need to be so good to our enemies and show them so much kindness that they are ashamed of the way they have treated us. That's what he means in verse 20. So it says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heat burning coals on his head. Now, if this was literal... You know, heaping burning coals on a person's head would be a pretty bad thing, right? It would be pretty awful, and it would kind of negate what he just said about taking vengeance. I, I think that if you were to put burning coals on a person's head, you got even, no matter what he did to you. Like, that would be pretty bad, right? But that's not what he actually means. And that's not what he actually means. What he's saying is that by, by doing kindness to a person... You put them to shame for the evil that they did. So whatever evil a person had did, when you show kindness to them, it puts them to shame. It activates that guilt and that shame that people have when they have been in the wrong, when they've done the wrong thing. That's what he's saying there. And so what that means is, is that by us doing good, they then have an opportunity to get right with God because they feel ashamed of their sin, and so they are aware of it. That puts them on the step of things like confession and repentance, things that they need to do in their lives. So certainly we should never 
We, we should never want to, to, to cause harm to a person, but if we bring them to God, that is a good thing. Now, we can never let, evil, or let the evil in this world overcome us because the good within us is more powerful. So it truly would be letting it happen. Yes, there's evil in this world, and, and by golly, it seems powerful, but what God has put in us is more powerful, and so we cannot let it have its way. Um, it has become very clear that the world has a me-first mentality. That is abundantly clear across almost every platform that you see. But we live lives that are characterized by love. Uh, that's when we demonstrate a better life. The me-first, it's got to end. It's going to end, and it's going to end badly. But when we are serving others, that is a life that is sustainable. So let's wrap this up. So although everything Paul has said here sounds like common sense, it will take a tremendous amount of work for us to apply these principles. Nothing he said here seems like way out there, things that are difficult to understand. We comprehend. Love each other. Love your enemies. Give your life to God. Those are things that we understand. But it's going to be hard for us to do these things, and, and that's the point. So there are um, many specific statements, things that Paul tells us to do here. Um, but we can, I think we can take away three things as, as takeaways for this, things that I think will be kind of universal for us. In everything, the Christian response is love. There, there's never a time for arrogance. There's never a time for anger and rage. There's never a time for hatred. Everything, our response is love. How can we show love in this situation? How can we best reflect the love of God in this situation? Believers should always be characterized by humility. If there's someone that you know as a very proud person, like arrogant proud, that's not good, because that means they're characterized by that. Let us be known as a humble people, people willing to serve others. And finally, righteousness includes trusting God even when people attack us. Because the, the human response is to get even. If you can't get even, call a couple of your friends so that together you can get even. That's the human response. But that's not the heavenly response. We trust in God. So let me put it like this. Every sin ever committed on this earth will either be dealt with at the cross of Jesus Christ where He gave His own life to pay the price for that sin or it will be paid for in the second judgment, in, in the lake of fire, for all eternity. You can't do anything better than either of those. If someone has been forgiven of their sins by the blood of Jesus Christ, they're a new creature. You don't have a right to hold a grudge against that person anymore. And if they, unfortunately, do not know Jesus as their Savior, then what they receive is far greater than anything that you would ever do. Trust that God decides what happens. Revenge is not something that we can take a part of. What we need to live for is love, showing love, being humble, being that servant to other people. That's what we're supposed to be. Let God sort out the good and the bad. God will do that. We live with love. We live with humility. We serve Him. So if that's the, the go out and do so that this is a sermon, not just a lesson. Go out and be loving. Go out and be humble. Show other people that you view them as important, that you view them as children of God. So when you're dealing with Christians, they're children of God. When you're dealing with the lost, they are people that you hope will become a child of God through a gospel ministry. That's what's important. Let's have a word of prayer.
Lord, we thank you so much for your word this morning that, that probably revealed to all of us that there are things that we need to do. One thing we were told was to look inside, to look at ourselves first and see where we might need to grow. And I pray that you help each of us to figure that out. Let us strive to become more like you on a day-to-day basis. I pray that you grow the love that we have so that we can respond with gentleness and kindness, so that we can have true concern for those around us, so that we can be the kinds of people that lift others up. There is so much to put us down in this world, so let us be the ones that lift up. Let us be the encouragers. And Father, I pray that you remind us that we must be humble in everything. You have made us joint heirs with Jesus Christ, but yet we still remain humble because that is not something we've earned. It's a gift. And it's a gift that that we want to communicate with other people. So I pray that you help us to do that. Thank you for this day. And I pray that you help us to remain faithful to you in everything that we say and do regardless of what our circumstances are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.